Welcome to the RAQA Cafe, a conversational podcast with a couple of hosts that spend each episode talking about regulatory affairs and quality assurance topics. NAMSA is happy to bring the RAQA Cafe to you, where each episode features NAMSA consultants and their experiences. Be sure to visit NAMSA at namsa.com for more information and access all podcasts and transcripts. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello, today we are airing an episode of the RAQA Cafe podcast that was recorded live with RAPS through their webinar series. This was a special collaboration between RAPS and AMSA for our first episode with an audience. To this conversation, we invited Paul Risbro and Matt Royal from our European division of NAMSA. Paul and Matt are principal regulatory consultants and both formerly worked for EU notified bodies. They are two of our experts on the EU MDR, and for this podcast, we brought them in to talk to them about their experiences of attending and presenting at RAPS conferences. We also took this opportunity to talk with them about the topic of benefit risk determination and the specific challenges of this activity for medical device manufacturers. We hope that you enjoy the redistribution of this conversation through the RAQA Cafe. Thank you so much, Rich. We're back again for another episode of the RAQA Cafe. For our guests that are live that are not used to our format, we just like thank you for being here and sitting down and having this conversation with us. We just like to get together, have a conversation, discuss trending medtech topics and just really have an easy conversation. Right, Rich? Right. Yeah. The whole point of this podcast was really for our, it almost seems like our self-indulgence so that we have an opportunity to talk to our coworkers and friends and colleagues in the industries who, about subjects that we used to get to talk about in person. And so this format gives us a great opportunity to carry on those conversations and, and, and have an audience. Yeah. And one thing we like to mention, it is a cafe. So take some time get something to drink, get something to eat, sit back, enjoy the conversation, and then we'll jump right into it. So for today's episode, Rich, we have two amazing guests. I'm, I'm not even trying to oversell it. We really have two amazing guests. Our first guest is Matt Royal. He's a principal regulatory consultant at NAMSA. He has over 18 years of experience working with cross-functional teams, mid-sized, large medtech companies, startups, and he has developed an understanding of the unique regulatory challenge that it, each, that it each face. So I really want to introduce Matt, and I can't wait for the audience to get to know more about him. And then our second panel guest is Paul Risborough. He's also a principal regulatory consultant. He has worked in industry for over 25 years. He has seen many different types of active medical devices, and we're just really delighted to have them here. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Thanks, Matt. It's great having you guys here. One of the best parts about this is just getting to talk to people I've gotten to know over the years, and uh, it's just it's fun. So uh, this is really truly a a passion project for Linford and I. And uh, Linford, what this is our fourth fourth episode now that we'll be launching fifth record or fifth or sixth recorded, but this will be the fourth in the series. This hey, is our, that's great a, to be here, guys. Thanks for thanks for inviting yeah. us. Yeah, thank you. My That's first a... podcast. It'd be nice. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. For what about us. you, Matt? Are you, are you well published in the podcast industry? No, not at all. I'm not sure whether I'm going to do the rock star thing and listen back to it or not. I know that's frowned upon in, in some circles, right? But uh, Rich, I was going to say, it's actually really nice to talk to you again because, you know, we've worked on some uh, big projects together in the past. And I think we, we've had um, projects where we, we chat once, twice right. a week. Yeah. So, Linford, Matt's kind of my go-to person whenever I'm, I'm dealing with a really difficult question, and I think I have an answer. I, I often will give him a call or a chat and say, hey, what do you think of this? And then, um, and then we figure it out. So, um, I mean, that's, that's the wonderful magic that happens behind the scenes is when you're working with us, you've got our entire network that comes to support us. Uh, you know, there's never a question that I ask that I don't usually get a response back in a you know, within the day and usually within a couple of minutes of advice, suggestions, and you know, scenarios. And well, you know, again, this is the RAQA Cafe. Our first question is always, what have you got in your glass? So I've got my little RAQA Cafe cup. Paul, what are you drinking today? Well, I've got my uh, Hello Sailor mug. 
okay. which is either got rum in it because I want to be a pirate one day, or it's got tea in it. You decide. Let's see how the conversation goes. <laughs> and Matt, so I've got my uh, trusty mug of black coffee, which a friend of mine once told me. So he's ex-military, and he asked me, "Who taught you to make coffee like you're in the SAS?" apparently i drink sas style coffee and my mother-in-law refers to it as a rambo so instead of offering me a coffee she offers me a rambo (laughs) excellent and what about you linford uh so for me i have a a fruit smoothie right so um for those healthy no matter where you are right allergies is doing wonders with me this year and i'm trying to get as much vitamin c into my body as possible (laughs) I'm not sneezing and sniffling all over this podcast. So fruit smoothie. And I went fancy today in that I, I made myself a nice French press coffee. I usually only save the French press for special occasions. Otherwise, I'm just, you know, using the regular Nespresso or uh, for my coffee needs. But um, but this French press is so nice and smooth. I recently made the switch of getting rid of creamer and sugar in my coffee. So I've, I'm learning how to drink black coffee and it's going okay. <laughs> I, I, I've learned I probably rich. How, how many people have been drinking black coffee in the last, you know, in the last sort of twenty-four hours? I'll be a lot of regulatory folk on this. Um, so probably, probably IV dripping black coffee, right? Yeah. Well, I think what I've learned is I like creamer and sugar, and really, just the the coffee provides the caffeine. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, again, you know, thank you for joining us. This conversation is really kind of a, a two-parter conversation. The first part, first half an hour, we want to talk to you guys about your experiences at RAPS. Again, this is a joint project with them. We really appreciate them giving the, us their platform to, to help project this podcast. So you know, hopefully we go from having 10 audience members to now 11. <laughs> and uh, actually, I... I I lie. We actually are getting some metrics back and people are listening and we, we hope the audience continues to grow and that we continue to provide great content and interesting subjects. And we're always open to hearing good subject ideas or if there's people you'd like us to bring in or people who want to come on. You know, We hope this lasts for a long time. So at some point in time, we're going to run out of ideas and we'd love to have hear ideas from, from others on what we can do for podcasts. But so the first half of the conversation... We want to talk to you guys about your your RAPS experiences. Uh, Paul, recently you were at the Euro Convergence. Matt, I know last year you you came across to the United States and and were sat on a panel at the U.S. RAPS. And I'm sure you've had other experiences. I myself have done a couple webinars with RAPS, but I've actually never been to one of the conferences. So, and my wife has been to several. Linford, have you been to a RAPS? Yeah, I have actually been to. I want to say two conferences. One I remember okay. was in Maryland. So they're pretty informative. So I'm really jealous because everybody I talk to who goes to one comes back energized, excited. They've learned all this new information. They want to start applying it. They come back, you know, better at what they do. So I, I think it's a it's a very successful conference. So maybe I, maybe I can get to one in, in the next year or two. And I think equally, Rich, it's a, it's a good opportunity to meet your colleagues. You know, Paul and I had worked together. What well, I I thought Paul only existed as a head and shoulders. We only meet in foreign countries, Matt. We, we've met yeah. a Raps Phoenix and we've met in the US. We only meet in foreign countries, like it's some yeah. hot <laughs> I'm curious how, I mean, don't want to give away details, but, you know, if you guys had to drive to each other's houses, how long of a drive would it be? Well, well it would be a drive for me, wouldn't it, Paul? Because no one drives up north. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We've we've got border controls on Dorset, you know, so it'd be a tricky one. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's probably think, probably about what to Leeds, probably a good five hours, I'd imagine. Yeah, no, I'd be more interested if that's where your boat, mate. Yeah, all right, Linford. I think it'd take me about eight hours to get to your house, so you'd have plenty of warning. <clears throat> yeah, it'll take about time. But with that said, though, what are some key takeaways though that Paul from going to Raps EU Convergence Twenty Three that you would say that you've learned about? Well, it was my first EU wraps, which is you know great experience. Never been to Amsterdam before. I didn't try all the delights, I promise. But uh, yeah, it's a good conference. It was well represented by Notified Body, Competent Authority, and EMA folks. And you know, I was a poster boy there, so that was quite nice. I presented a PSUR poster, and I tried to coerce everybody to vote for me. 
um, didn't quite win, but I got a lot of good feedback and a lot of good, good discussions about, you know, PSURs and, you know, the burden of, you know, PMS, you know, data and systems that are sort of come about by the MDR. So that was, that was really good. I guess the big takeaway is don't delay your MDR applications. And that was said several, several times, whether it be by, I think it was definitely the competent authorities, definitely the commission and definitely the notified bodies. There wasn't one conversation I didn't hear where they said, please don't delay your applications, irrespective of the extension. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that I've learned with working with some clients is that, yes, it's it's a lot of work on your end, but also on the notified body end, I mean, there's limited bandwidth. I mean, there's only so many people. So even if everybody were doing their submissions perfectly, it would yep. still be a colossal amount of work to get through. And of course, you know, since this is new, it's it's going to take time. We all learn from our experiences and it's a challenge on both ends. So I'm really happy about the extension. I highly doubt there will be another one. You know, this is it. Now. Oh, so I think real. that was a, a question directly asked by one of the audience members and everybody said, no, never, you know, please, yeah. please just engage with it. And I think the takeaway you know, point is the extension is there to make sure there's not a, a break in supply of products to the, uh, the market. It's there to relieve some of the, you know, the burden on the notified bodies. And if we're honest about it, I don't think it gives that much more time to manufacturers. You've still got to get your applications in, I think, uh, by next year, and you've got to have a contract with a notified body by September next year. So there's still quite a burden on the manufacturers to get ready, get prepared irrespective of whether they're asking for extensions or not. So I think it you know, is important. And, and I guess what was sort of underwriting this sort of conversation was you know, just talking about you know, fellow consultants and um, notified body colleagues, that you know, ex-notified body colleagues that I know. Everybody's seen a bit of a dip in the workload as a result of the extension. And almost there's a feeling that manufacturers have you know, taken a step back and they're, they're reconfiguring their strategies maybe and how they're going to approach this. But I think the message definitely loud and clear, you need to keep forging ahead. And I guess one of the clear points of notified bodies is if you don't, even though it feels like it's a long time away, the 27, 28 deadlines now, once they get to that point, they're going to be back into recertification cycles on MDR. So, you know, if you're leaving things later, you're just going to come into another you know, roadblock at the end of the day where there's this big peak in recertification activities at notified bodies. So I think that was a, a good takeaway. That's good. That's good. And also, just to build on that, you mentioned that you went to the reps in Phoenix, I believe, last year, right? Yep. What are some similarities or differences between those two, I guess, conferences that you will say? Yeah, I think obviously there's the European versus the US style. The US style was like being on Oprah Winfrey show. The, the EU <laughs> style was a bit more, you know, nice circle of seats on the stage and a bit more open. So it's yeah, definitely more pizzazz. You know, I think Matt and myself were laughing about Phoenix saying, it's the only time we sat down for breakfast to, you know, pumping house music, you know, so. Registration in a pair of effectively board shorts, though, and I didn't realise yeah. there was a whole opening gambit and there were people in suits and I was sat yeah. trying to cover my modesty. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, the messaging probably hasn't changed from an MDR perspective. You know, we're going to talk about clinical things soon. You know, clinical's been a, a big bugbear for every manufacturer. You know, ever since the, the MDR came mm -hmm. into existence, we'll talk about that in a minute. You know, and, you know, one of the presentations I did was on best practices for, you know, delivering your technical file to the notified body. You know, what things you should look at and how you should structure it. And, you know, it's just a roundtable talk, had quite a few people there. But I think it's, you know, it's that theme of, you know, still pushing to get to the MDR finish line effectively. And I think that's going to be a theme for many years to come, really, now with the extension. I think it's really important that you said best practices. I'll never forget my first couple of years in the industry in, in quality. And, and you know, I, I came from a completely different environment. So I, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And I was really surprised on all the regulations and standards and how little prescription there was in them. And so you say best practices. And I think that's probably really important for our industry to start to to try to tackle on that, you know, what are the best practices to becoming MDR compliant? Because while we've got all these regulations that say what we need to do, you know, it's your job to figure out how you're going to get there. And so to get things like that, advice, suggestions, things that you've seen, I mean, this is one of my favorite parts about working for NAMSA is I get to see how a bunch of different companies do things. And, you know, there's 
always different ways to do it. And from that, you know, I get to, oh, I really like this tool or I really like this approach or the the structure of this document really is reader friendly. Like I think that's a challenge we often find is it, we know what we're saying and we know yeah. what we're doing, but getting it documented for an independent reviewer to be able to understand is a, is a very different uh, subject. Yeah. And I think, you know, between MDD and MDR, there's a lot more prescription, I guess, in terms of the MDCG guidance. It's still not law. You still don't have to follow it. But I guess the vast amount of MDCG guidance is there to try and bring that standardization of approach. And, you know, every notified body is going to be designing their review processes around the MDCG guidance. And, and so, you know, sometimes I think as manufacturers and, you know, and as consultants, you look at the MDCG guidance and think, wow, it doesn't quite fit what I want. It doesn't fit to our structure. Should I really be doing it that way? I guess my piece of advice is yes, because that makes it easier for notified body to review your work. And, you know, I, you know, the one web page I have open every day of my job is the MDCG guidance web page, because there's always something you need to dip into, something you need to understand, whether it be dates or, you know, how we're going to transition or PSURs, you name it, cybersecurity, it's all in there and it's growing all the time and evolving all the time. So I think, you know, my, yeah, always use that as a, a key resource. Whenever I open up the MDCG website, I often think, you know, we, I think we, we sometimes take it for granted, right? We, we can recall most of even the MDCG numbers we need. It would be a big old piece of work, I think, for a, a new manufacturer to Europe. So they picked up the regulation. They've already seen that the landscape shift in terms of the dates already. Then they they get a they they hear this of this acronym MDCG. They don't really know what it it is. They open up this website that requires a good number of scrolls of the mouse wheel to get to the bottom. And I've I've spoken with a number of manufacturers who who are just so almost like bewildered by the amount of guidance and number of documents and the interlinks between the documents and being able to understand we've got to kind of read the document to work out whether or not it even applies to you or not and there's so many nuances within the mdcgs to try and link together and i've often thought of you know a brand new manufacturer trying to do it alone on the i mean it's a really tough challenge in europe yeah definitely that's a very i want a a quick house or something that we need to address in that if if you do have questions i see some of them showing up in the webinar chat we'd really like if you could put questions that you would like us to talk about in the Q&A component of, of Zoom, that way we can see the questions and we can try to answer them as best we can. And any ones that we don't get to during this pod or during this podcast or recording, we'll get a script so that we can follow up on them to the people that ask them. If you use the web chat, unfortunately, we'll lose that information. So please ask your questions in the Q&A. Sorry, Linford, I, I interrupted you. No, actually, that's a good point because what I was going to mention is that we mentioned we need like audience feedback, right? And we have some polling questions that are going to come up. So if you have access to a, to a computer or your phone, try to answer these questions. And we're really just trying to gauge what the audience is doing because we talked about best practices, what is being done in industry. And hopefully some of these questions will help us understand what's actually being done with our colleagues, right? So Rich, if you just want to pull up the polling questions for those who are able to see it, we have, I want to say, uh, five questions. You have to answer all the questions at once, but eventually we'll, we're going to go through each of these questions, each of these topics. So one of the first okay. questions you'll see is, have you ever made an MDR application yet? And one of the questions that we have for our panel guests is, yes, we know there's an extension, not really a delay. But what are some things you've seen from your clients that's, have they been submitting their MDR applications or have you seen a pause? Like what have you seen that's happening so far? Yeah, Um, I mean, (laughs) okay. I was just going to say, you know, we get quite a few clients that um, come to us for support for remediation work. And, you know, some of it we're doing set pieces. So we we provide those set pieces, whether it be a PSUR, PMCF plan, survey designs, things like that. And, you know, we're starting to see feedback coming now, which is good because they've obviously submitted. You know, we're also doing big remediation jobs of full MDR files, and we are submitting those now. So I think the manufacturers are working with us, are submitting and are getting those things in front of the notified body. So, you know, that's been great and good to see. And now we're starting to see that feedback, um, which, again, is nice, good for us. And, you know, we can support the client through that feedback. Just to, to add really to what Paul said and really link it back to what we're talking about, some of the guidance documents, 
So, you know, firstly, some some of the manufacturers that we work with, it's quite clear that the the submissions being made to Notify Body have been rushed and already effectively, you know, if you have managed to get through the completeness check, but the quality of the actual documents themselves just aren't up to the mark. There's, I, I've seen a lot of kind of like really wasting a round of notified body questions and notified bodies are are limiting them under the MDR. But in addition as well, seeing there's some really easy MDCGs to follow that are almost a, a, a just a template. And you know, manufacturers can do a lot just to make their lives easier by just following the templates. Yeah, I guess the um, other point to that, Matt, is the, the notify bodies provide, you know, their best practice guidance for submitting your files. You know, having run through some of those, they're really excellent documents. They're almost like a, a GSPR checklist. To, you know, you structure the files to how they want them. They tie into their checklists. It means that, A, you can confirm you've got everything that needs to be delivered by going through the checklist. And when the notified body gets in, does that completeness check, they can confirm that it, you know, what you say is there. And, and I think having worked through that system, the ones I've worked on seem very well structured. You know, they, you can be very efficient in the type of information they want to see, you know, whether it be you know, packaging validations, you know, bills of materials, things like that. And, and they all create a nice structure for your technical file, which you know, personally I believe is easy to maintain as well. So you know, adopting your notified bodies, you know, guidance is probably key in the success of this, because if you try and deviate from that, you're not going to get through the completeness checks. And, you know, and if you don't get through the completeness checks, that just adds more and more delay to you getting a, a, an assessment. So definitely use that, you know, you know, and a lot of notified bodies have some really good guidance and other, you know, white papers and things like that you should always turn to. You know, it's not just MDCG. Part, a missing part as well, right, that we, we often see is... The, the technical documentation has been clearly been written by many, many people, but it's not been stitched yeah. together. And I mean, you know, the, the obvious is, you know, mm-hmm. three, four, five. I mean, I, I've seen many, many different just intended purpose statements. Now, that's technical reports that are all trying to prove a slightly different intended purpose statement. And if, if manufacturers can add in an element of internal review to ensure that that there is a a regulatory story being told across the documents i think that would really strengthen the applications we were talking about it earlier you need almost one or two conductors of the orchestra to ensure that you've got that consistency across the documents whether it be your standards list because it's repeated in several places your device descriptions repeated in several places Mm -hmm. your clinical data and your clinical benefits and your quantified undesirable side effects they're all listed or repeated in several of the documents and you need to demonstrate that consistency and that's got to lead to your ifu and it's got to lead to your sscp um because you know almost that's probably where the notified body will start to say well what have you claimed in your ifu what you're claiming in your sscp can i drive that back now through the documentation to see where this information comes from and what backs it up so i think you know and I feel for manufacturers, to be honest, you know, having you know, worked on a few of these big jobs now, I feel for them in terms of, you know, if you've, you're a small company and you've got a complex product with lots of accessories, how do you knit all that together? If you're even if a big company, we've got you know, thousands of products, you know, how do you orchestrate that on a product by product level and stitch it all together? You know, I think you've got to think about standardizing and having master lists of things that can be, you know, maintained, but then disseminated as the, the master version, you know, and things like that. So you've got to be a bit smart about that because I think that's a big challenge is to, you know, that consistency of message across the documents. We've got a couple of questions coming in yep. that I think are applicable to the conversation. So one attendee said, most companies are confused on the APR and include them in the PER, do we need to have a separate APR document? And I'm honestly going to have to rely on you guys to, to let me know what I'm these acronyms are for. That's a, a performance evaluation report. Okay. And But it's IVD, so I'm going to claim the fifth because I don't really know. I'm not an <laughs> IVD expert. I'm a device expert, electronic, <laughs> software, okay. active. I mean, I think that's something we definitely can go back to on that question of you know got colleagues in the team that can help us ask that answer that. yeah i was going to say the, the the people that i would go to aren't aren't on this channel but we can get that information yeah. and, and provide some yeah maybe that's your next podcast you can pull some ivd people in yeah I, yeah they're on the list um yeah. and, and that'll be a great learning opportunity for me 
Yes, uh, you know you, what? I'm really, I'm really glad that's not just me, Paul. So, yep. you know, I, I feel that maybe uh, uh, this with, with the grand introduction that I was given at the beginning of this call, <laughs> right? And then if you'd have had an answer based on based and, and it suddenly in this MDD world, I think I'd have uh, I think I'd have probably downgraded my job title myself. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, nobody knows everything. I mean, I think Matt, you've memorized the MDR because whenever I call you up, you're like, oh, it's it's Annex Five Section A Part Twelve. And I think it's the third sentence. That's I'm just making it up at the time, Rich. I'm just trying to sound smart. (laughs) Seriously, I'm just making it up. (laughs) And I don't want to lose this because it's it's in the web chat. But I think Limford, there's actually a good question for you, where um, an individual said that they're new to the U.S. and their and their their RA experiences in um, the MENA region, and they were hoping that uh, do you have any advice on you know starting the right roadmap to to the US. So I know this isn't quite on subject, but I figured you'd have great advice on that. You know, if somebody wanted to get into US regs, what would you tell them to do? Don't Ooh. do it. No, sorry. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. I wouldn't say that far. Um I honestly I'll say raps have a lot of good source material to give you just a foundation that you'll need to understand like just like the basic of the US reg. But honestly, you have to do it. You have to you just have to do it. Either it's a submission, it's like maybe working on, let's say, like an actual change order, like just to understand what your device is, what the processes are, reading guidance documents. That would be my recommendation, not knowing exactly what you want to do. Yeah, I think that's a good piece of advice. Just do it. I, you know, I've, you know, I'm XBSI. And so I've got lots of colleagues in that, you know, within the notify body. And you know, they say you just need to give it a go. You know, don't be afraid of the MDR. Don't be afraid of giving it a go. Just get in there, give it a go, you know, because that's the only way you're going to get through it. And, you know, we all learn as we do this. And we know notified bodies and other regulatory organizations, you know, they're always going to ask something. They're always going to have a slightly different opinion to you. Um, and I think that's the challenge of the job is, you know, get learning through that experience, isn't it, at the end of the day? That link to that, you know, Paul, um, it's something um, we, we've talked about before, you know, um, even on the an MDR application manufacturer, a certain type of device, certain type of department within a certain notified body. So already the variables are stacking up. Yeah. You know, really trying to learn from the first round of questions on the first submission. Yeah. And yes. trying to be able to react to that, making sure you've got the right amount of resource. I mean, I've I've worked in the past with companies that as soon as they get a notified body question in, everything stops on any other project and everyone moves over to that. But, you know, as we're talking about setting up these smart teams about trying to ensure that the the salient points of what the notified body seem to be looking for in this area, make its way into the next submission and even maybe delaying the next submission, right? Until you've got the flavor of what the notified body seem to be looking for. Yeah. I guess one of the, you know, I went to one of the sessions on, done by notified body at raps about um you know the clinical feedback and how to get through the sort of clinical assessment uh, for the mdr and they made a good point that you know between 40 and 80 questions is typical for a a technical documentation review in the first round so you think 40 to 80 questions and they're saying the majority of those are, are based around clinical so i think i guess yeah there's a couple of points there you know Every question you get asked is going to cost you money because you're paying a notified body to you know, check your answers. You've, you've paid them to actually give you the question in the first place. So I think it's, it's you know, paramount as an organization. You learn from that. And I, I have met organizations that would have their um, audits. They get all their questions. Once they'd battled their way through and answered them, they almost would say, we're not going to get these questions again. What remediation do we need to do in our QMS, our tech files? you know, across the board, try and avoid these types of questions in the future because they appreciate the cost of money and they incur huge delays. And when you think, you know, some of the figures we were told was, you know, you know, 12, 18, 24 months to get a, you know, device through a, a notified body at the moment. Um, wow. Yeah. You know, and- so I think it is, you know, you know, I think sometimes there's this feeling that investing a lot of time and effort and money in getting a, a, a file together, you know, there's this sort of brinkmanship, isn't there? Some manufacturer will try and do the bare minimum. Some will go gold standard. If we're honest, probably somewhere in the middle is where you need to be. But it's, it's you know, 
And I think that goes back to my thing about the, the guidance, play the game, play the game and play it well, you know, to try and keep those questions down. You know, so that's, that's what we a, should be doing. That's a good point. Cause there's another question that came in question answer that came in. It says, it's like, they give some background, but they said that since entry into in of MDR, some companies are finding the process of, of obtaining new approvals for their already approved products. Yeah. In some cases worthwhile due to the high costs and now longer timeline. So in some cases, not worthwhile. Right. Yeah. And the question was really saying, what would you recommend for startup companies and small companies to do? Yeah. So that's a really difficult one. I think is because we know notified body resources limited, but I think it's research notified bodies, find out which one you want to work with. Uh, and, you know, and notified bodies can come across as closed shops, but it is, you know, is a, a partnership of sorts. So, you know, if you can get a contract with that notified body, get yourself, you know, a project manager or scheme manager assigned, depending on the organization find that in use their you know use their guidance because notified bodies don't want you to fail you know every every notified body person is a human being you know they want you to <laughs> they they've got people that you know need medical care you know i'm only in this industry because i need medical care you know mostly mental but you know anyway but you know it's sort of <laughs> it, it is that sort of thing is you know we talk about it becomes a bit them and us and having been on both sides i think you know it's a weird partnership but you want to you know, it's like putting your home best homework in and getting it marked and hoping you're going to get a B plus rather than a C minus. You know, it's a bit like that. But I, I think it is for small companies, it's difficult, but choose your notified body wisely. Make sure they've obviously got the scope for the type of products that you're going to work with, uh, you know, that you have. Um, start early, structure your technical documentation around their requirements for review. Try and get, you know, that contract off the ground as soon as you can in terms of, you know, depends where you are in your development life cycle because you know if you're right at the beginning you know not so much you can do but if you're coming towards that end you start getting things into clinical you know trials or whatever you know you can start those conversations and and try and get that and i say start i know notified bodies are inundated so sometimes starting those conversations is difficult but you've got to give it a go like we said earlier and but i think it is and if matt you can add anything to that because you've got sort of experience um, i was gonna um, say matt i know we've dealt with this well, do you know one piece of advice that I give manufacturers is that, well, all manufacturers really, whether it's a small, small or not, but be responsible for yourselves. I, I remember when I was in a notified body, there were a you know, number of manufacturers who, who relied on the notified body to issue them letters and communications. You know, your certificates are expiring soon. We need you to submit a renewal application. Um, maybe sampling of tech files could sometimes get delayed. The good manufacturers, and I see the really good manufacturers that are going to be successful under the MDR, are those that are proactive about it. Don't wait to be asked to submit your PSUR, you know, when, when you're in the, the yearly cycle of it. Um, be proactive. Once you've made a submission to notify buddy, ask them the status of it, particularly when you're in the, um, in the realms of technical file sampling. Don't just think, well, they asked for a file for sampling. I've sent it in. Them not getting back to me is good news for me. It isn't good news for you because they're going to ask for even more files next year and more files the next year. And all you're going to do is concertina up your panic into maybe the last sort of two or, or, yeah. or, or one year. So those manufacturers that maintain that interaction and relationship with the notified body and also, you know, don't rely on being pulled through the process. Bit, yeah. A bit like um, healthcare, right? The NHS in, in this country, right? If you just, if you took the... Um, if every time, you know, uh, the administrator, secretary said, you're going to get a letter about this, you know, some people might wait a very, very long time. You, you, you're a bit more proactive about your own health. You maybe phone up and say, well, I've not had that letter yet. Where is it? And yeah. I think the same holds true in the regulatory space. Yeah, it's the, the health of your company at the end of the day, isn't it? It's the ability to sell products. So, And I think I just add to that is almost sweat the big stuff. You know, it's, you know. We all know clinical is the showstopper most of the times. You know, that's the one people trip over on. So I think there's definitely, you know, we all appreciate companies don't have endless resource. And it's, you know, it's try and, you know, use internal audit, do your own internal audits, you know, look at your own technical documentation, say, well, where's my, where's my weaknesses? Where's my strengths? Where do I need to apply my effort to make this, you know, have, you know, get through the notified body, have left squadrons. And, you know, it's most definitely usually the clinical and the risk and, and those links between clinical risk and, you know, because all those things feed the PSURs and the SSCPs and the IFUs, as we said before. So I think it is try and focus where you put your efforts and you know, identify the types of resources you need to actually make those efforts. Yeah, 
I just want to add, I mean, we've got lots of other questions and other things to talk about, so I don't want to dwell on this too long, but I think that another key point that everybody has to realize that this is not just a regulatory decision, it's also a financial decision. And that, you know, when you're looking at what you need to do to become MDR compliant and you're looking at your catalog, you got to prioritize them. And every company is going to prioritize in different ways. But, you know, the the financial component of this needs to be factored in because especially for small manufacturers, you might not have the manpower to be able to create all the deliverables you need for MDR. So then at that point, you need to look at yourself and ask, okay, do we need to hire somebody else? Do we need to bring in temporary resources like contractors? Do we need to bring in maybe a higher level, something like a consultant that can actually not just do the work, but can guide us on the best practices to move forward? But you've got to look at that aspect too. And you know, I would love to be in a world where we make all of our decisions based on what's going to be the best therapy and do the best, most good. But you got to keep the doors open to do those things as well. So bring in your finance people to help you make those decisions because we want to see companies survive and thrive and continue to develop new and innovative product. But, you know, you've got to have a, an income stream to be able to accomplish those goals. Yeah, definitely. And um, just on, just yeah. on that, really, actually, I think another important component of that financials is the cost to maintain it all. Because, mm-hmm. you know, Paul was talking about like threading all these things together, the IFU talks, the SSCP, which is underpinned by the risk management, the PSUR, the CR. Once you've almost, whilst the ink is still dry on those documents, the one-year cycle comes back round, particularly for high-risk PSURs, right? And the amount of energy that is going to be needed to keep those live um, documents moving and feeding off each other, I think that you know manufacturers really should be costing that into their, you know, once we've got cert. How are we going to keep them? Yeah, and that is some degree being smart about how you maintain your documents as well. Have you written them to be maintainable? You know, can you just update the tables of the complaints information and things like that? Is it, you know, is it that simple or are you going to make massive changes to your products that need then rewrites of all these documents, you know, or from scratch yeah. almost, you know, or yeah, I think it's, and it's looking at the systems that support you behind that. And we've talked about this in the last week or so about, you know, are your PMS systems fit for collecting the data you need to feed a PSUR, you know, IMDRF codes, things like that, you know, are, are you assigning those when a complaint comes in or are you waiting to when a PSUR report's got to be written and, you know, you've got to then figure out what IMDRF codes you, you add to it. So I think it's trying to look at it all holistically and, you know, I know that's difficult and it's going to take time, but I think, you know, it, it certainly does challenge some of the systems that are out there, especially for PMS. Particularly when another person picks it up, right? So you write a PSUR this year, and um, you know next year, Paul, you've been promoted. You're doing, you know, much grander things, and I come along to pick up your work, and I I'm struggling to now analyze just one year of it. So it seems an easier task. You had to analyze five years at the beginning. I've only got to knock one year off and add one year on, but I'm yeah. you know potentially now struggling with how you've done your analysis. Yeah, you know that. The PSUR is a summary. There should be the raw data captured somewhere in a really reworkable and reusable fashion. And if there's certain assumptions you've had to make and decisions you've had to make in those that last five-year analysis, then, yeah. then it should be documented so I can come along and pick it up and not think, well, what on earth, what, what's this guy done before me? You know, in fact, yeah, I yeah. don't agree with any of this. You know, show your workings out internally. Yeah, definitely. This is Matt. We could keep going on yeah. this, right? But there's one thing I really want to just really highlight a little bit. Ideally, is risk benefit because I feel I want to know what lessons you guys have learned. And I don't know, Rich, if we have the poll results back, but once we get those pulled out, but just some of the key takeaways I'll say that you would like to like just highlight when it comes to benefit risk or risk benefit, however you want to say it. Paul, do you want me to take this? Yeah, yeah, that's you, Matt. You're the master. So it's all rooted in uh, state-of-the-art. And um, I mean, I don't say that lightly. I think, Paul, that was actually one of the, uh, the first first comments you even, um, when we caught up, when you got back from RAPS, right? You said state-of-the-art. Yeah, yeah, that was definitely, uh, you know, a RAPS piece of feedback was, you know, you've got to root everything in your clinical evaluation within state-of-the-art. And if you get and that wrong, you're on, the, you're on the wrong path already. 
And by wrong, you know, what, what do we mean by wrong? So the, there's having a state of the art, which is 30 pages in, in a CER or, or wherever you keep it, that's a lot of chat about a topic. Then there's a state of the art, which is actually usable. Can you take information from it and use it to compare your device to? And, you know, I've, I've sometimes seen situations where state of the arts maybe don't see the wood for the trees. They aren't really coming up with the key data that's necessary. And, and it's the key data is out there. But, you know, it's really easy to find, you know, I mean, the ultimate prize for some devices might say be meta-analyses, right? And then other yeah. groups, other other professionals have done the analysis for you. And you can you can find meta-analyses that will effectively give you, for example, undesirable side effects for your type of technology pretty much tied up in a neat bow in one document. Yet, if you limit your searches, for example, to only, you know, last five years, and that meta-analysis was published six years ago, you're not going to capture it. And I think the key is to for people writing the state of the arts to, to understand what it is being used for. Yeah, and it is that benchmark, isn't it, Matt? It's your you're using it to set a benchmark for the performance and safety of your product. And that's the key thing. And I think under the MDR, you know, the word quantifiable or measurable are banded around an awful lot. And I think, you know, sometimes it's difficult to identify what is a quantifiable safety objective or a performance objective. But but I think that's what you've got to strive to achieve is that quantifying those results. And, you know, and some of the things that we've been involved in is quantifying, say, for example, undesirable side effects, but feeding those back into the risk management to say, you know, do we know what the undesirable side effects we're seeing are? And do we understand what we're getting reported for our product? And then being able to use the risk management to say whether that's still within, you know, you know, a reasoned, you know, the risk is still acceptable. And, you know, I think, I guess, Matt, we, we, we should, again, shouldn't underestimate the amount of effort that takes, but once you've done it well, that feeds your, you know, especially for your, your high risk device, that feeds your SSCP. You know? Yeah. And, you know, and, it's, you, and, you, and your IFUs and, you know, and that is the stuff that notified bodies love. You know, if you see that, if you see that well-presented data, you know, in a nice table that this is what the state of the art is, this is what we do. And look, we're within these limits. That's a massive tick on your homework. That's an A plus in my book. So one thing, Matt, before you jump in, uh, we use a lot of acronyms. Could you define SSCP or what does that mean? Oh, so I know, didn't know APR from earlier, but uh, SSC, Summary of Safety of Clinical Performance. I'll start again. Summary of Safety in Clinical Performance. Yep. Now, I, I actually, I recently wrote one and having been intimately involved in a benefit risk determination, which meant that I was intimately involved in the PSUR. And this really is what Paul was talking about, about ensuring that you've got people that understand the thread that goes through the documents. Intimately involved in the CER, had, was aware of the IFU work going on. I mean, there'll, there'll be probably be some participants in this call now that dread ever trying to write an SSCP, right? However, it was a doddle. It was a pleasure to write because effectively, I was just taking all the work from that benefit risk determination, which had a solid state of the art, which had a PSUR that had um, analysed the data in a certain way. And it, it was quite a straightforward process writing an SSCP. Yeah. It shouldn't be scary if you've done all the other components. Yeah. And that, that all stems from the clinical evaluation, you know, and that's the heart of the clinical evaluation. And I guess another, you know, maybe a bit of an aside, but an interesting takeaway that one of the notified bodies said at RAPS was the, you know, that they expect to see your PMCF and PMS plans being driven out of your clinical evaluation. So, you know, there's this, I think old school is everybody wanted to see are the wrapped up everything nicely. No problems here, governor, you know, everything's good. Look the other way, you know, but the MDR is really pushing transparency and it's pushing you to evaluate your data, you know, and then if you do have gaps, you know, if it's legacy devices been on the market for 30 years, they're probably not showstoppers, you know, but there is an expectation that that will drive your post-market surveillance activities. And so, you know, I made a note of that because I thought that was quite interesting that that was specifically mentioned. They expect this link, you know, between the evaluation and what your PMS activities are doing. And then there's silence as we all breathe in deeply. No, I think oh. our Rich was trying to speak. He was yeah, on mute. Was on mute. Oh, right. I coughed and forgot to take myself off. Yeah. Trust me, there wasn't silence. Tech, you know, user error on my end. Um, 
we, we actually had a really good question come in that was related yep. to st- state of the art and Ooh, AI. Well, well, yeah, AI, that's, that's the bleeding edge, right? No. Yep. So they said, how do companies manage state of the art and, um, or standards in terms of state of the art? There are so few standards that are harmonized under the MBR. And I know I can talk about this a little bit and that, you know, the standards are slowly getting harmonized to the MDR, but the ones that are harmonized under the MDD are still very useful and valuable standards that you should, if there isn't an MDR harmonized standard, I still yeah. recommend you use the MDD one. And then you add the layer of due diligence of looking at what the MDR requirements are on top of that and applying both. And if you do that, I would think that you're in pretty good standing when you're able to apply apply standards to help you establish state of the art, right? Yeah, and I can't remember the definition of state of the art off completely off my head, but it is you know the the expected in general norm of technology in medical science, for example. They're not quite the right words, Matt. You might memorize it, but yeah, but, you the, know, you got the line. There, yeah, Paul, yeah, definitely. You've, definitely you've, you've definitely got some kind of definition there. Yeah, yeah. I made up a definition, but but basically, it's saying you know what is the expected norm? And if standards are the expected norm, and we know there's lots of device-specific standards out there. So if you're making a pacemaker, use the pacemaker standard, whether it's harmonized or not. If you're doing a blood pressure monitor, use the blood pressure monitor mm-hmm. standard. You know, RF surgical, the same. You know, so you know, that's the, the thing is, just because they're not harmonized doesn't mean you don't use them because you know, irrespective of whether they're harmonized, I think the Note 5 bodies still believe that you know, it gives you that you know, presumption of conformity, especially if they were also... Um, you know, harmonized under the MDD. So I think, you know, state of the art is the latest and greatest standards. And, and almost you'd say, well, once they've harmonized them, if the standard changes, what should I do? Well, if the standard changes, that becomes a new state of the art and you do your gap analysis and figure out, you know, what you need to do to meet it, you know, because... Paul, I'm glad you mentioned that. Really, yeah. That's really important, right? How, how many manufacturer submissions do, or, or tech files do we help out on? And there's some testing to... And it's not just ISO standards, you know, an ASTM yep. dated, you know, 1998. And you think, well, come on, but, yep. you know, that's a long time. And you check and the current version is 2021 and yep. mm-hmm. nobody has thought about that bridge. Now, you, you don't necessarily have to go away and do brand new testing, right? But you have to acknowledge in your submission where the state of the art is, i.e. the latest, greatest, the, the latest dated standard and why the work you've done previously in 1998 still meets it and maybe it doesn't and because the notified body auditors are going to ask that question guaranteed yep i agree yeah that's a that's a quality subject near and dear to me and that uh you know maintaining compliance to standards as they as they change over time is is really important and sometimes you know the change is insignificant but you've got to have that documentation that gap analysis on okay you know the standard updated it doesn't affect the way we did our testing, so we're we consider ourselves compliant. And you take that record and you, you file it away so that you can find it later and add it to your tech file if you need to, or supply it to a to a reviewer when they ask that question. But um, because you know, if they're looking at the source document, if they're looking at the actual report, they're going to see the standard that you tested to, which might have that original date. Where you know, if they're looking at maybe a summary document, hopefully you've updated those to include the the current version that you you consider yourself compliant to yeah so we did have a question on what are your thoughts about the role of ai and mdr and i that how do you know i'm so real many different how do you know i'm not an ai that's what i, <laughs> I am a go to america to find out if paul's real or not i was like a nervous first data at the airport waiting for yeah. paul to turn up <laughs> yeah my personal thoughts that it's here and it's you know it's getting you know, there's an awful lot of people doing AI-based search engines and things like that for compiling your clinical data um, and, and providing those services and those software. You know, I think every organization is going to be looking at AI, especially, yeah. you know, I think even you know, whether it be notified bodies or manufacturers, sometimes there's a limited pool of resource in terms of medical device expertise and development. So, you know, I think these tools are going to be used more and more. Now, I don't know, I'm assuming the question was, in respect to using them as a tool set in the MDR, not necessarily AI-based medical devices, but they still need to meet the MDR. And there is regulations that are coming, and there's a lot of guidance that's been published from notified bodies um, and working groups on AI and medical devices. So whether you like it or not, it's here and it's probably here to stay. 
But and we actually just had a, a white paper published by one of our coworkers, Monica Montanez, on on AI. Um, yeah. I, I it just came out. I haven't read it yet. But have have any of you? I know Linford, you have, but uh, Matt and Paul, have you guys had an opportunity to talk with Monica about yeah. AI? She loves the subject. She walks circles around me. But um, I mean, and is she human? She Can I just check? Is she the- human? Yeah, she's a human. I love Monica. So does that mean I'm going to love AI? Because Monica, Monica is one of my favourite NAMS people. I've not spoken to her for a while. So, um, you know, obviously, Rich, you are another of my favourite NAMS people. Linford. We've I'm only recently there. met, but I'm, yeah, I'm sure I'm I will there. be saying you are too. <laughs> yeah, my, and to, now I feel completely jilted. <laughs> <laughs> my bromance is over. <laughs> but. Um, Go ahead, Lumford. I was going to say it's um, there's one more question I want to get in. So I think that's going to take us over. But in case, you know, some of our listeners have to like drop off, just like us, I guess some few quick items would be that um, any questions for like IVD or IVDD, you know, we'll try to have a podcast with our experts, right? That try to help us to answer those questions. Um, we haven't forgotten those questions. It's just that we just want to keep a little bit more focus on the medical device side. And then also, you know, we have three additional podcast episodes that are out there for everyone to listen to. Monica, that we just mentioned, is on the latest episode. You can understand where she's coming from. Her love for software is there. She just please take a listen. And then within the last couple of minutes that we have, we had this question that came in and the setup is pretty lengthy, but I'll ask the question first, right? It says, should manufacturers use the same criteria to assess changes of MDR certified devices? And where they're coming from, they say that the recently updated MDCG 2020-3 regarding significant changes, um, this document's scope is legacy devices that are in transition yeah. under the MDR. So they're trying to understand, should manufacturers, I guess, use the same criteria or what should they do? Good question. They want an answer. That's a shame. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I, I would, you know, I'd get, I'm not going to take this offline, but I'd say they are sensible criteria. I, I guess my hesitation in responding immediately is, is there anything within the MDR about reporting changes? So if you've got a design exam certificate, you're a high risk device, you're effectively reporting all changes. Um, for your lower classification devices, you're reporting you know, if as long as it's within your scope of your certificate, they can be rolled up, I believe, at your next surveillance audit. So I would, you know, I'm happy to take that question on and try and give a much better answer. I just want to do a bit of background first. I'd hate to mislead. Matt, I don't know if you've got anything to add or no, I think it is as a foundation. Yeah. It, but yeah, to try and provide the answer in a, you know, uh, a sort of serve and volley i don't think would be fair so i think yeah it, need, it needs a bit of uh chewing on in the background i think yeah we'll, we'll go and chew on that one okay. whilst drinking some rum <laughs> i mean again if the answers were easy um well we we would probably be out of jobs but um <laughs> or, <laughs> i mean there's there's a lot of challenges so yeah. i should we should we end with the polling questions i i think yeah i, I think was, those answers are great yeah, well, I think they're great, but it also shows that the people who who came to attend, I mean, everybody's got a different situation, and yeah. some are more ready than others. But I, I think the major takeaway here is that if you're if you're not ready or you're still working your way through MDR and benefit risk determination and things like that, you're you're not alone. There are lots of people out there that are working on these challenges. So, first question was, you know, have you made an MDR application yet? Um, it was almost fifty fifty. So fifty three percent said yes. Um, they have and and forty seven said they haven't. So yeah, you know that's that's a pretty even split. The second question: Have you changed your MDR technical file remediation plans as a result of the latest extension? So twenty seven percent said yes. I like that. You know, uh, a, a majority of the group said no. We're we're following our current plan and yeah. we're we're sticking with it. And you know, and then there's another 16% that said, you know, we're still trying to figure, we haven't figured that out yet. So we don't know if it's going to affect our plans or not. Um, my, the third question, I, sorry, I got a little cheeky there with an answer, but, uh, you know, for the PMS, uh, PMCF requirements of the MDR, um, have been effective since, uh, May of last year. Have you been meeting those new requirements? And, um, the majority of our audience said yes, uh, 20% said no. And then, um, 
we've got uh, another quarter percent that uh, pleaded the fifth. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we haven't stressed those people out. Yep. So that was the, those were the legal people that showed up for this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> so fourth question, has the notified body MDR assessment caused you to make changes to your clinical claims? And if so, um, what aspects? And so Paul, when you asked that question during our prep meetings, I, I was like, oh, that's a great question because I honestly probably wouldn't have thought about that part and the impact. And, um, and as you can see, you know, we've, we've got, I, I didn't have a, a, an additional answer that said, no, it hasn't changed things. But as you can see, you know, the, the, the assessments coming back are providing useful information for manufacturers that are helping them um, yep. update their, their clinical claims on their product. And oh, yeah, it's great. That's half the people, you know, basically on the call. I've yeah. changes, which is, yeah, it's quite interesting. I, I, w- I honestly want to dive deeper into this at some point in time yeah. and see the impact of the MP- MDR. Um, I know from a device manufacturer perspective, this is a new hurdle. It's a new challenge for us. But um, at the end of the day, you know, if it makes medical devices safer, I, I'm all for it. Um, because I think, again, we're all individuals. I think the reason we all do what we do is because we want to see safe product. We want to see innovative product. We want to see new therapies going out. We really want to see improvement. And the last thing we ever want is to be associated with um, or, you know, part of the, the process where something goes out that's not safe. So, yeah, um, you know, helping making sure that the intended purpose correct. Um, that we know what the indications for use are and, and being able to separate those two things out so we know what the differences are, right? That's that's an, a conversation on its own. Recognizing that you really need to identify what your patient target group is, that you know something that goes into an adult might not be appropriate for, for a pediatric use. Um, you know, that's the easy example, but there's lots of other patient target group situations to resolve you know, helping you clarify what your expected clinical benefit is. I think that's where our growth is. That's what we talked about quite a bit today is that, you know, what are your clinical benefits and really doing a good job of describing that and identifying it during your development. And then, you know, my subject that's near and dear to my heart is the quality person. And um, I wrote a white paper on it, but, you know, knowing what your warnings, precautions, contraindications, and limitations um, are for your device. And then the last question is, okay, so if you're doing benefit risk determination, where do you store that information? And, um, you know, all the smart people picked the risk management report. <laughs> Sorry, I love talking risk for people who don't know me. But, um, but, you know, the risk management report, 40% of them, clinical evidence report, 29%. I actually expected that to be flip-flopped um, because I see quite a few people putting that information into the, into the CER these days. Um, another 20%. They, they have a standalone document that does it. And I think that's probably the future um, because then the risk management report and the clinical evidence report can reference that source document for that information and it centralizes the information, right? And I think the, the benefit risk determination is going to get quite long, right? I mean, we've gone from it being a single paragraph that is a rubber stamp of, yep, our benefits outweigh the risks to now 49-page documents, when you start doing things like meta-analysis and things like that. And then uh, there was a small percentage that said other, which um, if you would like to share, I would love to know what the others are. So if you put that in the Q&A or or even in the webinar chat, I would love to know the other locations people are putting their benefit-risk determinations. So, you know, thank you for participating in the poll. Uh, I think it's great to be able to share this information with each other. Um, it's, it's things that I know the, the four of us on this conversation are probably going to go back and look and think about, probably have separate conversations. I hope because this is amazing. I mean, we're, we're five minutes over. Can you believe we filled the full hour? uh, (laughs) Yeah, we did. We did take the full hour. Um, again, both Matt and Paul, thank you so much. Thank you all. I think one of the, I guess the best comment that we have received so far is that, can you do this format more often? Um, I really enjoyed it. So hopefully we can do this again in the future. Um, Matt and Paul, now you're famous, right? Now you're known. So um, <laughs> we'll be calling on you again, right? Yeah. So, but everyone that's here, thank you so much. Thank you for staying over. And thank you, Raps, as well, for having us. Yeah, thanks, Yeah, guys. thank Appreciate you, Raps. It. Really enjoyed it. Thanks. 
Thanks to the audience for great questions. We really appreciate it. This was a special recording of the RAQA Cafe with an audience from the RAPS webinar series. We would like to thank Matt and Paul for being part of our experiment. And also a big thank you to RAPS for helping us expand our audience. Once again, Limford and I really enjoyed the conversation on what happened at the RAPS Euro Convergence and on the challenges of benefit risk determination. If you enjoyed our podcast and would like to hear more, please visit us at www.namsa.com. And don't forget to bring your favorite drink.